Okay, welcome to another edition of the Edlo Podcast. Subscribe uh, if you haven't already. Subscribe. I uh, this is another exciting one for me. I've been I've been working on this one for a couple of months. I have uh, President and Sister Tally, formerly uh, President of the uh, Roseville Mission, Roseville California Mission, or is it California Roseville? How do they say that? California Roseville Mission. Yeah. And so you just got home, you uh, what, a month ago? Less than a month ago? Just, uh, just under a month. Wow. You returned home July 2nd. Yeah. July 2nd. Wow. Just in time for the fourth festivities. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, uh, uh, you, you, you've been serving for three years. And um, so how do you feel now that you've been home? Well, uh, there's a great deal of uh, pressure and stress associated mm. with the particular <laughs> service. Mm. Um, we had a maximum of 242 missionaries at one point during COVID. And, you know, my work day, I was formerly a lawyer professionally, and it was a busy schedule, but uh, my work day typically would begin at 630 in the morning as a mission president, as a mission president and uh, not not be done till 10 or later at night. Um, yeah. It was, it was nonstop, virtually. We'd stop yeah. meals, and that was about it, and maybe exercise in the morning. Um, but otherwise, it was constant, constant work. Yeah. And so being home... Yeah. Actually, I'm a little surprised. Days are passing quickly here. Huh. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's the end of the day, and I'm like, where'd the day go? <laughs> yeah. And wow. I you know, had the same feeling on the mission. I was like, man, that day went fast. But yeah, yeah. Do you do you feel like it's a? I mean, I just remember, like I said, I know it's different um, being mission, you know, mission president, uh, but. I just remember when I came home from my mission, kind of having a little bit of shell shock and being like, I have all these rules where I get up at 6.30 in the morning, I'm in bed by 10.30, you know, my day is regimented all day. Now it's not. Uh, it took me a little bit to kind of get into a groove. Did you feel a similar feeling? I mean, you were out for three instead of two. Well, I um, my life has always been, at least since I had joined the church and served my mission, back in the late 70s, and my life had become pretty organized and regimented that way, and professionally and also as a church leader in other capacities. I've always had a pretty packed schedule and organized it that way. So that didn't really change when I, when I got back. What, what did seem to be a little bit slow developing for me was actually setting goals. Mm. You know, a missionary sets goals, and um, mission president and and mission leaders would set goals, but I, you know, I had to give some thought, and I'm still in that process. I've got about four or five now, which I think I'm settling on. But that took me a while to figure out what do I want to accomplish, say, before the end of the year. Yeah, it's yeah. different for mission leaders. You know, we don't have the regimented get up at six thirty. You know, say your morning prayer, get ready, personal study we can dictate how our time is used. So, you know, we don't have to follow that. And we could still do things. We could go to a, have a Friday night date and go to a movie, um, hmm. those kind of things. So, and, you know, we'd have family come visit us sometimes. And so the, the days weren't quite as regimented as they are for the young missionary. 
Um, that I, I typically was up at about six o'clock or six fifteen. My day would start. I'm a morning person. My day would start early, and um, you know, I to that extent, I guess it was somewhat regimented. You know, I get scripture study in the morning and preparation for the day, that sort of thing. But um, like like April has said, uh, you know, the missionaries we had a morning schedule for them, and if they would follow it. Um, it, it would make the day go much better for them than, than if they didn't. I noticed that on my mission as well. You know, I, I got it. Well, because I, I served um, 14 months of my mission as a zone leader. And uh, one of the most frustrating things in the world was being right in the middle of a good personal scripture study and getting a phone call from a missionary who's having a problem. <laughs> <laughs> we hear you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and I got to imagine. I I actually, I think I often prayed to not be an assistant to the mission president because it, I don't know if it was the same in the Roseville mission, but I know in mine, the assistants didn't have an area. So all they did was administration. And I enjoyed the the leadership uh, part of it just because I was around other great missionaries and the mission president. I got to learn from a lot of great people, but I loved actually going out and teaching. And it was just such a struggle to not the idea that assistants wouldn't be able to do that, uh, at least in my mission. Do your assistants, were they, did they have an area as well, or were they generally administrative? Yes, they did have an area, and it's pretty much standard policy, standard uh, um, for all the mission leaders, assistants, as well as zone leaders, district leaders. They, they have a proselyting area. Now, the assistants would um, engage in a great deal in exchanges all throughout the mission. Hmm. We had the largest geographical mission in the state of California, mm. um, the northern suburbs of Sacramento, almost to the Oregon border. So, those elders did a fair amount of traveling, but they would they would do exchanges. Uh, one of them would go up to north to say the Redding Stake area, and the other one would stay in his area, which was typically down south, not too far from the mission home. And so, yeah, they they were among our best uh, missionaries as far as finding and teaching and, and, and baptizing. Yeah, they had an assigned area. Nice. So, um, why don't we start real quick? Um, you you guys both have kind of a, a novel conversion story. You know, the mission presidents that I had, they were lifelong members of the church. One lived right next door to President Monson. You know, the other one the other one was in Elko, Nevada, but lifelong missionary. You know, mission. Uh, or lifelong member of the church. And what was really interesting to me about uh, you, President Talley, is that I understand that you converted in college. Is that right? Um, after I graduated from college. The process was beginning while I was in college, uh, mm. my undergraduate uh, schooling. Um, but it was after I actually graduated that um, I joined the church. Sister Tally joined at the age of 13, 14. Yours first. If you want to know her background, her conversion too. <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, that was the thing is I, I noticed that too. I know when we talked in prep for this, that President Tally shared that with me as well. Were you the only one who converted in your family? Yes. At 13? At 13, yeah. We weren't Six. attending any kind of church. And um, so when I wanted to get baptized, they were like, oh, okay. And the members of our congregation, our ward, um, were 
just fabulous. They would come and pick me up for um, Wednesday night activities when I was old enough to attend seminary. A family, <coughs> excuse me, would come by and pick me up, take me to seminary. I had rides to church every Sunday, you know, until I could drive and then I'd take myself. So, so now, um, was there something specific when you're looking for a church to get baptized in? Was there something specific about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that drew you to it? Um, <laughs> yeah, I have to give you a little background. Um, I don't know how many people remember the Osmonds. Donnie oh, Osmond. yeah. Yeah. I was a big fan, you know, bedroom plastered with their pictures on the walls and and um, I knew they were, they were Mormons, they were LDS. And, um, but I thought that, that the LDS church was only out West. And I'm, I'm from Ohio, I was born mm -hmm. and raised here. And um, the summer of 1972, um, the Osmonds came to Akron and did a concert. And a bunch of my friends and I, we all went out to the site where the concert was, you know, hoping to get a glimpse of the Osmonds. And um, I met a, a girl there. Um, I wish I could remember her name. <laughs> she attended a Catholic school in Akron. And I also attended a Catholic school in Akron, although I was never Catholic. Hmm. Uh, I do really appreciate the teachings I got in in that school because that was really the only religious education I was getting. Mm -hmm. And um, but we started talking, commiserating about you know what it's like to go to a Catholic school and and you know our love for the Osmonds and that kind of thing. And we exchanged phone <laughs> numbers. And it was probably a month and a half, two months after that concert. I thought. I never called her and so mm -hmm. I called her and her mom put her on the phone and she goes I can't talk right now the Mormon missionaries are here <laughs> and, and I was like whoa okay call me back I was really curious you know about Mormon missionaries and so she called me back after they had left she had been writing a report for class at, at her school on a different religion and of course being an Osmond fan, she went, wrote to Salt Lake to find out about the Mormon church. And of course the church sent the missionaries. Nice. <laughs> and um, when she called me back, she said, oh, they want me to go to church on Sunday. I don't want to go all by myself. So will you hmm. meet there? And I said, sure, I'll go. And so I got my sister to drive me up that Sunday. Um, we never did meet up. I think she went to Sunday school. I ended up at sacrament meeting that's when they have the split schedule. Ah. And um, I walked in and sat down. The meeting was already in progress. And there was a woman sitting in the foyer. And she started talking to me and asking me questions. And the minute the meeting was over, she introduced me to the missionaries. And they gave me a, a lesson that night. And I remember I went home very excited that there were apostles on the earth today. Oh, nice. Um, that was one thing but the things that really stood out to me were was the church's definition of the godhead hmm. that they were three individual beings um because i could understand that i could never understand the trinity as it right. explained 
and um, the idea of a pre-mortal existence that just rang true to me for some reason. And the eternal nature of families, of course, I always qualify that, that I was a 13 year old little romantic and, <laughs> you know, eternal marriage just sounded. <laughs> yeah. But those were the things that really caught my attention about the church. Interesting. And so you, your parents were always supportive? Yeah, they were. They, you know, somebody asked my mom one time what she thought about me being involved with the Mormon church. And she said, there are a lot worse things she could be doing as a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just, it seems so interesting to me because, um, you know, I have, I have two daughters that are 14 and 12. And, you know, we, you know, the story Joseph Smith was 14 when, you know, uh, he had his first vision. And it's just so interesting to me that someone would be mature enough to make that decision on their own with no, with no family support at 13. So that, that's really interesting. Did you feel like you were, I mean, to even be thinking about baptism, what was, was there something specific that made you think about that when you were 13? I don't remember. I mean, other than the invitation from the missionaries to be hmm. baptized. Um, I, I think having attended the Catholic school, because I started in kindergarten at that school, mm -hmm. I, I really think that led me down a more spiritual path than the rest of my family. Mm. And I, I can remember having a Bible out and trying to read the Bible when I was, you know, third grade kind of thing. And, and so I think I was just leaning more that way. I just right. always, I always look back at that and think, what were the odds that I would call that girl the day the missionaries were at her house? Yeah. yeah. And I think, boy, the Lord's hand was in that. He was bringing me into the gospel. And, and I just, I look back at that. There are, that's too, too coincidental to not be part of his plan for my life, I guess. Wow. And uh, did you, did you serve a mission in, the, in your youth? No, I did not. Okay. All right. So yeah. she ended up going to BYU. She graduated a year early from Catholic school. Oh, okay. Well, to BYU to chase Osmos. She <laughs> ended up actually working uh, for Donnie Marie on the Donnie Marie Variety Hour show. She was on the production. No kidding. Yeah, they built their studio in Orem and right when I was at BYU. So I got wow. a job there doing cue cards for them. Did you ever get an opportunity to share that story with them? No, I'm, I never, I never told them. Oh man! <laughs> you, you know, when you work for them, you kind of want to downplay that you're a big fan. So. Yeah, I bet. I think it would just be. I remember one, um, uh, one person I knew in my youth, older, um, older lady who got baptized. It was interesting to her, um, that she had heard Steve Young. Um, say after winning a Super Bowl, he said something to the effect of, we're going to have a party and it's going to be one of those parties that even a, a clean Mormon boy like me could could have fun at. And uh, that struck a chord in her and she decided to investigate the church and ended up getting baptized. And she had an opportunity to tell him about about that. And I bet I bet the Osmonds would have loved to hear that, you know, they had some some effect on on you uh, joining the church. I think that's cool. 
So. Yeah, the, the day I was baptized, two other girls who were Osmond fans also got baptized. <laughs> oh, nice. We had we had several joining the church. And I remember reading that uh, they were excused from serving full-time missions because they were spreading the news of the mm. church so well that they didn't have to worry well, about proselyting mission <laughs> well they got they got three they got three baptisms that sounded right there so yeah. there you go i think they had hundreds actually oh i think they probably had thousands all across the country yeah and england too they were very big in england so i would imagine there's right now now president tally the thing that, that is interesting about you is like i said i mean so you're you were in college what years were you in college um from 1972 to 1976. Yeah. So, so you're, you're about the same age as, as my dad. And my dad was not a member of the church. He was actually Jewish. And hearing his stories in those ages, the church was farthest from his mind <laughs> in the, in the early seventies, um, sounded more like a, that movie dazed and confused than anything. And so, um, where were you, where were you attending college? Uh, Bowling Green. Well, I started at Boston University my first year, but then I transferred back to Ohio to uh, Bowling Green State University and got my degree. It was a fine arts degree in creative writing and uh, minors in English and Greek and Latin studies. And um, um, we were raised, uh, Catholic, or not Catholic, but um, Episcopal, Episcopalian. Hmm. And I have a twin brother. Hmm. And uh, when we were seniors in high school, um, we both decided that we just didn't believe anything about the Episcopal Church. It, it, it was, you know, like April's story, we got some good foundation. You know, I'd been reading the Bible, but I, I just found that I couldn't, it really was the, the tenets of, of the church that I just couldn't, hmm. couldn't subscribe to. So we told our parents we didn't want to go anymore and the whole family stopped going. Mm. But my brother kept looking, and uh, right out of high school, he went into the military and uh, uh, served in Korea. He was an ambulance driver in, in uh, South Korea. He came home on leave uh, one summer for about two weeks, I think. Hmm. And an old high school friend, someone that he had dated uh, in high school, had joined the church and they were talking and she recognized immediately that i think it was an impression of the spirit dave you need to talk to missionaries and he said no i don't want to talk to any you know latter day mm -hmm. missionaries she said yeah it was interesting she insisted no dave just once you need to listen to them and i remember that occasion it was summertime and they were teaching my brother on the back patio of our, our home and they were in short sleeved white shirts tie and they had their tags, and um, my brother uh, knew immediately in the first lesson that this is what he wanted. He was completely won over by the uh, Joseph Smith account of the first vision, hmm. and um, he said, what do I have to do to be baptized? Because he only had a week and a half, two weeks, and they said, well, um, you need to receive all these missionary discussions, and you need to give up those cigarettes <laughs> in his front pocket, <laughs> and he just turned them right over. Wow. He, he smoked uh, maybe a pack and a half, two packs a day, and he just turned them over and never went back to that. Wow. He received all the lessons and was baptized. And when we turned to Korea, he immediately decided, I got to start saving for a mission myself. 
Hmm. So he, uh, when he was released from the military, he applied for a mission and uh, uh, served in the Salt Lake City mission. Um, hmm. I'm not sure he was among the first waves of missionaries, but I think he served from between 1975, 1974-75 is when he started hmm. and served in Salt Lake. Now, in the meantime, um, my senior year in college, <laughs> um, I began to think about religion again. Hmm. And um, I took a course, the Bible is literature. Um, hmm. uh, the year before, I, I wanted to learn Greek because I, I was interested in Greek literature, classic literature. And um, to, you know, an easy way into that Greek language is to read the Gospel of John in Greek. It's a very simple hmm. vocabulary, very simple, it's repetitive, grammar is simple. And so I was reading the Gospel of John in Greek, and um, and I also took a philosophy of religion course my senior year in college. And so by the end of the year, as I was approaching graduation, I thought, I've got to, I want to find out if there's a God or not. It just seemed to me a fundamental question. And I thought it might have been naivete or it might have just been simply a seed of faith that I thought I could get an answer to that question. Is there a God? Hmm. And there is or there isn't. So I decided to go on a, something of a quest, spiritual quest. And um, April has heard this story at least a thousand times. <laughs> and actually, if anybody wants, if anybody's interested, um, as a mission president, while we were under COVID restrictions, the, we had a social media team that made a video of this conversion story. It's about a seven and a half minute clip of my conversion story. You can find it in the Facebook uh, page called Follow Christ NorCal. Hmm. The video is entitled, Is There a God? Hmm. So I decided to uh, go out west to the Tetons in Wyoming. I had two high school friends that were living there and working and uh, they had a cabin on the Teton Pass just before you hit the Idaho border. Hmm. So I went there and uh, um, settled in, got a job working in a restaurant, and uh, uh, my shift was usually over early afternoon, so I would go hiking in the mountains and asking myself this question. And I'd taken some scriptures. I had uh, a Latin New Testament that I was reading, and I was trying to find an answer to this question, and Interestingly enough, it happened at the restaurant kitchen. Uh, one day I was cutting strawberries in the kitchen for you know, desserts. April is starting to smile because usually when I tell the story, I start carving the strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you live the experience, but the sun was pouring into the kitchen window. And, you know, anyone, a great many Christians have probably had this kind of experience. It felt as though um, my thinking had really calmed and it was as though a separate authoritative voice just simply whispered to me, there is a God. And I immediately felt uh, some joy in, in that declaration. And I just accepted it. Okay, there's a God. Um, now what? <laughs> and uh, um, I thought, well, uh, let me call my brother Dave on his mission. Hmm. Um, I was in the Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and he's in Salt Lake City. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to call, you know, missionaries while they're sitting on your mission. <laughs> right. And, um, but he, uh, just before I was calling him, he was praying. Hmm. Interesting experience. He was praying pretty, pretty fervently about the family because nobody was interested in 
what he had to offer. But as he was praying, he, he heard a voice saying, your family is in my hands. They're all fine. And your brother, Doug, is going to call you in the next five minutes. Pretty wow. Interesting. Pretty interesting. Yeah, this is before, that is interesting. This is before there's a you know, caller, ID. caller ID or anything like that. So, you know, brother, he phone. I dialed him up, had the number, and he picked up the phone and said, hi, Doug, how are you doing? And I thought, wow. wow. I didn't know that. And I just simply explained to him, I've come to the conclusion there's a God, but I don't know what to do about that. What's, what are my next steps? And he got permission from his mission president to invite me to come visit him for the weekend. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't have a car, so I packed my backpack and hitchhiked 300 miles from uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, down to Salt Lake City, thinking, well, I'm going to be like an ancient disciple. I, I'll go without purses. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money. And... Uh, and I thought, the, if this is if this is real, if this is the right path to take, he'll, you know, the Lord will give me rides to Salt Lake City. And I still don't know how he managed to do it. There was no GPS. We didn't have cell phones. But somehow he met me on the outskirts of town. I think I called him from a payphone and let him know where I was. And he came and picked me up and um, took me to Temple Square on a Saturday and then took me to church on Sunday. And again, Coincidentally, um, he was the concluding speaker in sacrament that day. Hmm. And as he was speaking, as he was speaking, I don't remember anything he said, but it was I was I was riveted. Um, hmm. I, it felt to me like he was radiating light. I think I thought I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, I want that. I, at least I want to explore it. Hmm. So I asked him what I need to do. He just gave me a copy of the Book of Mormon and said, "Read this." Yeah. And so I started reading it, and I, I was borrowing it. 150 pages in two days. So by the time I'm, <laughs> by the time I'm uh, returning to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I guess a backstory. Uh, I had a beard and a ponytail at the time. That's um, what I was gonna. That's interesting because that's what I was thinking. I'm like, you're in the early, you're in the mid 70s, so you yeah, had to, have, yeah, you no, had I, to look a little different than what than what you're looking like right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was the backwash of the 60s. I, I, yeah. was, <laughs> I was swirling in that backwash. And I didn't think I was going to get a ride out of Salt Lake City, so I bought a bus ticket. I think it was to Ogden, hmm. and I'm sitting on the bus. And I'm, having, I'm repeating that same experience that I had in the restaurant kitchen. The sun was pouring into the window, and I'm reading. By this time, I'm in King Benjamin's speech in the book of Mosiah. And it was chapter 2, I think, verse 41. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. And I just had that flash of insight again that uh, it was the Spirit speaking to me. Yes, this is true. And I decided right there and then I had to be baptized. So I went back to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and within a couple of weeks, I returned home to Ohio for my sister's wedding. And I called up the missionaries and uh, asked them to come over to the house. <laughs> and when they knocked on the door and I opened it up, of course, they saw me with my beard and my ponytail. And I said, Elders, um, I want to be baptized. <laughs> um, you've got one week. Can you make that happen? <laughs> and they, they about dropped to the, you know, to the porch. Yeah. Shock. And they taught me every day. And I'd been to church by this time at least twice, uh, three times. Uh, the final Sunday, I was baptized that evening. And then I returned back to Bowling Green. Um, <laughs> I was dating a girl at the time who was Roman Catholic, uh, not April, <laughs> 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 somebody else. 
Um, but I decided uh, ultimately to, to move on. Um, enrolled in a graduate program at BYU in uh, Greek and Latin studies, but at the last minute I decided that I should serve a mission instead. Mm. So I applied. And of all places, it was the last place I expected to go. I got called to the Rome Italy mission. Nice. I'd had seven years of Latin. I don't know why I thought that that would in fact win somehow. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. Now, so tell me about that decision. Because, I mean, at this point, then what, you're 22, 23 years old? Yes, yes. Yeah. So a little older for missionary. I mean, they're going at 19 at that point, right? That's right. That's right. And I also had a twin brother. I, I actually, when I joined the church, I did not want to serve a mission. I already had a companion 24 seven for mm-hmm. know, almost 18 years. Right. So that's, that's how I, that's how I viewed it. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, a couple of events were leading me to think about it more openly. And one Sunday afternoon, um, I went walking in a park at, uh, in Provo and I got pretty stirred up about my next steps. And I sat down on the bench and thought, what, what should I do? And I was feeling a lot of pressure that I had to serve a mission. And that just sort of grated uh, against me a little bit. Um, but as I asked the question, I was, you know, Heavenly Father, what do I do? Um, again, it was almost as though I was hearing a voice or feeling a voice saying, you could do two things that would please me. You could uh, look for a wife and marry the temple. And you could go on the mission. I can't remember if it was a if it was an either or proposition or if it was conjunctive. You know, <laughs> look for a wife and you can go on a mission. Mm-hmm. But um, I think one of the most important questions I ever asked, um, a follow up question, was, "Well, Heavenly Father, what would you have me do?" Mm. And it was very very clear: go on a mission. And so I just stood up and decided right there and then I was going to go on a mission. Wow. My tuition was due the next day, and I went into the administration building and said, "That you know, can you know, I, am I going to have to reapply because I want to serve a mission?" <laughs> it's just didn't realize how easy it was going to be. You know, oh, we'll defer your enrollment. You're good. Just mm. have a great time on your mission. So nice. that that's the story. Wow. So was that a hard transition for you? I mean, I mean, and what I mean by that is, did you have to make a lot of lifestyle changes? Um, I did, but I was already making them. My mm-hmm. senior year in college, I was always starting to make them. I decided mm-hmm. that, um, you know, without knowing what the word of wisdom was, that mm-hmm. some of the things that I, you know, I had as a habit just didn't seem to, seem to, how do I put it? I wasn't feeling illuminated by yeah. that. So, you know, I, I started, you know, I stopped. I had stopped soaking cigarettes myself years before, but you know, alcohol, that sort of thing, I had, I had quit. Mm. And um, you know, I was really sort of cleaning up on my own without knowing that's what you know, I, I would need to do. And The haircut was probably the biggest thing. Yeah. I could yeah, imagine. Just kept my hair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I got cut gradually. Um, they didn't. <laughs> um, right. At church, they were kind of shocked when I went back to Bowling Green, I showed up. and. <laughs> it's funny you know that's that's funny that you bring that up i remember um i served uh, uh for a time in citrus heights uh on the high council in the missionary actually working with you and uh president martel when he gave me the calling i remember asking him like do i have to shave <laughs> was like, he goes no you're fine i'm like all right i'll do it 
Well, so, back, back then and, and also now, you do have to shave if you're going to be a missionary. I know, I know. That's a, that's one of those things that's interesting, actually. That's one of those those rules that I find really fascinating. Um, but it, it's a you know level of faith, right? You know, it's it's right. part of it's part of the deal. You know, you you do those things even if you don't know if they make sense or not. For me, even when I went on my mission when I was 18, I had a full goatee. You know all that stuff, and and I just I, I didn't like a clean shaven face, and my hair has never been super long or anything, but but um, but man, so so you 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 may, you're already making these changes. You go on a mission. Um, I noticed in my mission, the missionaries who went kind of later, maybe it was just the maturity, or maybe they were better prepared, but they uh, they tended to be really great missionaries. And did you end up serving in leadership in your mission? I did. Um, I I'd only been out. I'd only been a member a year, and so mm-hmm. I was serving my mission when, uh, starting at the age of twenty three and finished at the age of twenty five. Mm-hmm. And and you know the the other elders referred to me as the grandpa of the mission. Right. <laughs> Although I had a companion, uh, very much like myself, who was a graduate uh, from MIT in architecture from the East Coast, who also was a convert. And it was a pretty amazing conversion himself. And we were companions together. And so he was the one person that uh, I really felt that I could connect with. Mm. One of the things I, I, I realized pretty quickly, though, is that even the young missionaries, uh, the elders, grew up pretty quickly in a foreign mission. Mm. And uh, I didn't feel like I had any you know, basis for superiority at all. I, I knew the Bible actually pretty well. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was still learning you know, Latter-day Saint doctrine from the Book of Mormon, <laughs> Doctrine of Covenants, but um, you know, I, I was a pretty deep studier. Yeah. And the adjustments, uh, I, I don't know, I'd lived away from home for several years already. Um, I mm. was feeling homesick, and I was just thrilled with the opportunity to be in Italy, learning Italian. Spent most of my time in Rome. Um, eight months was in Napoli, Naples, Italy, and the other, the rest of the time was in Rome. And so, in some respects, I, I felt like I was living the dream. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. So then, what you? Where do you guys meet? We met at a young adult dance. Yeah. Oh, the classic Mormon story. Yeah. 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 Were there hay bales everywhere? Was it a themed? Uh, no, I don't <laughs> remember. It, it was, it was a lot. There was a disco ball. Did, uh, did, did they have did they have that weird <laughs> sherbet drink there? You know that seems to be at every party, the Mormon party. The, no, that's funny. So so you meet at a dance, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, and uh, where were were you guys? Where were you guys at? Were you in Ohio then? By, yes. yes. By this time, I actually, um, I decided not to go to BYU and pursue my classics degree because I was dating a girl um, after I got home. Not me. No. <laughs> not me. It was the very girl that, that introduced my twin brother to the church. Oh wow! And so I yeah. dated her for quite some time, and. Um, and it sort of it was on again, off again. And at mm. one point I said, well, you know, I've been home for more than a year and we, I've never been to a single adult activity. So I'll go to this dance at the Akron YSA. And that's where I met April. So your first your first young single adult yeah. activity, you meet your wife. <laughs> yeah, that was probably, by this time I'm 26, maybe turning 27. 
27. You were 27. 27, and you were 22? 21. 21. 21. Well, well, turning 22. Yeah, you were turning. Yeah. Yeah, okay, we're only five years apart. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. She didn't yeah. call me grandpa, were we? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so you meet you meet Sister Tally, and well, you know, then you say goodbye to the to the other girl. Or did you already, did you already uh, no, no, I have to go back to her. Um, she, <laughs> she called me and wanted me to come they, over for her when, birthday. When he came to the dance, it was kind of off again. And then she called uh, him. Over. Oh yeah, one of those. Yeah. I've had one of those. I've had, I've had those two. I know what that's. <laughs> I know what that's like. Yeah. She, she's well, one. She was. She's a wonderful Latter Day Saint, but yeah. it just wasn't working out for us. Yeah. You know, that's some, that's something that I think is really important for for people to, to even know. I, I have, you know, I have a son. He's he's 16. So he's just started dating and he got himself a girlfriend. And that's one of the things I always I always told him was, you know, hey, you know, so you, sometimes it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't work out and you're going off again, and on again, stuff like that, maybe it's time to go and try, you know, try something new and see if there's somebody that's a better fit. And that's OK, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You learn something from every relationship. So. You really do. Yeah. Even the ones that don't don't go your way or you, you come out a little sour, you know, you, you learn just as much about what you don't want in a companion than you do. Yeah. So that's great. So was it, a, I mean, was it an immediate love connection? How long did you? For, for me, it was. Somebody really clicked that night. And so I got a phone number and I, I found out in some conversation that April was taking a ballet class. And I, I like the ballet. I like classical music. So I said, let's go to a ballet. And I called and I looked that Sunday trying to find some performance somewhere and there wasn't, but the Akron Symphony was playing. So I called her up and asked her, <laughs> I asked her if she'd go to the symphony with me. And this is kind of a... This is how nerdy he is. This, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I am a, I'm a lawyer by background. I'm you know, a creative writer. I'm, kind of, I'm a word nerd. And uh, when I called her up, I asked, is April there? And she said correctly, um, this is she. Uh, she wasn't using the demotic form of this is her. Uh -huh. um, and I thought, oh my goodness, she's angelic. <laughs> <laughs> she's perfect. <laughs> she knows how to speak the English language. Because <laughs> my mom taught me how to answer the phone. Right? Answer the phone, yeah. Yeah, that's um, so funny. We went to the concert that. Uh, uh, Listen, a couple of days, I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday night, yeah. and um, uh, there was a Beethoven uh, first symphony, and it was just a wonderful day, and I was sold. Nice. Completely sold. I knew I wanted to pursue the relationship, and um, he did too. I kind of had a hint. <laughs> yeah, you kind of had a had a. How long was it from from first date to marriage? Well, I proposed in two weeks. Wow, and Sister so Tally's like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, so well, let's talk about that because this is something that I think is an interesting, it is an interesting kind of cultural thing from our for our church the the quick courtships, and you know you you just said don't recommend it. Why don't you recommend it? Um, it the minute the proposal was out, then it changed the relationship because then mm. it was like, Oh, do I, do I want to marry him? Should I marry him? You know, mm. you know, I'm praying, do, is this the right person to marry? And, and so, yeah, this, the whole shift in it and instead of really getting to know him and, and exploring different things together, 
I was, it was all became about, are we going to get married or not? Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps my side of that the issue is, is a little bit different. And I don't, well, I want to be careful about saying this because I don't want to um, convey, uh, you know, a principle that, um, you know, everybody would have an experience like mine. But I had a dream just before I came home from my mission that gave me real clarity that when I met April, I knew she was the one that I wanted to pursue. <clears throat> and I don't know that that happens uh, you know, that frequently. I know we all want to receive revelation, but I've, I've come to believe that there, you know, there isn't just necessarily one person that we're destined to marry. Hmm. You know, I had been dating somebody else and I had something to compare this to. And I just knew from the way I felt with her immediately was deeply spiritual for me. Mm. That she would bring out the best in me. Mm. Um, and so um, I pursued it and I was anxious because <laughs> I was I was I was twenty seven after all. <laughs> right. I was always yeah. in society and you know, according to freedom young. <laughs> Well, no, that's that's a that's a question I have for you there because you, I mean, as a mission president, you do exit interviews with all of your missionaries, and you know there was a uh, there was a running joke that the mission president in my mission always told everybody that you're you know the classic your number one goal is to find your next companion, which of course was your eternal companion, um, and when I got to my to, to my exit interview, I was expecting him to say that. And he did say that, but he said, but you don't, you know, you don't go have to go home and just immediately find somebody, you know, take your time and do all those things. So uh, what counsel do you give to your missionaries on that regard when they were leaving? Well, um, we, uh, I, of course I have exit interviews with them, but I think at this point, particularly, we would have we organized departure day activities and mm -hmm. it would begin with a lunch at the mission office um, i might be conducting some departure interviews but we would go to the temple mm -hmm. um, to the sacramento temple in the afternoon and then when we got back um, we would uh, round all the missionaries up and we'd have a discussion uh, life after the mission mm -hmm. and sister tally and i would both talk to them about our experience and mm -hmm. you know, let them ask questions and um I think it might be a little, well, I know the dating patterns are different. You know, we've got six daughters and one son. Mm. There are five of them now are married and they're all adult now. And um, so much of the, 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 the social arrangement with regard to dating is you hang out in groups. Yeah. And that's particularly true at BYU. And um, we, one of the things we would emphasize is elder sisters go on dates and then we'd ask mm. them, find a date and it's uh, planned for uh, paid for and paired off. paired off you're not going mm. out with a group you're going out you know just the two of you mm. and then we'd talk about our own experience uh, april's experience on deciding to marry me was was different than mine which was so sudden and immediate um she she took time and i don't know you might share how you came to your conclusion i think it's a pretty important principle yeah, well, <laughs> you know, you want the one and only. That was that was mm -hmm. a big thing back when I was younger, and um, 
but my parents did not have a great marriage and I did mm. not want a marriage like theirs. And so yeah. it was really important that I was marrying somebody, you know, it could be different. And I, I kept praying about it. I wasn't getting any answer. And it was about two months later um, after he had asked me that the answer came and it was, this will work if you both keep the commandments. Mm. And it was like, oh, okay. That was not the, yes, this is the one you should marry. Um, but it, I, it was a really good answer because I, especially as time has gone on, I realized, yeah, if you're both keeping the commandments, the, the odds are high that you will be able to work through difficulties and, and mm. be able to communicate and, and build a loving foundation to build a marriage on. So one of the things we uh, share with the missionaries um, is some advice that we had heard well after we were married that was good advice for our, for our children. And the question is going to be, you know, you feel good about the, the, the marriage now, and the prospect of marriage now, but what about 20 years from now? Yeah. Because we know people will drift from their covenant. And what, uh, what we had been told, and I think it's pretty good advice, um, when this relationship appears to be getting serious, maybe some evening on a date when you're out to dinner, um, if it's an elder, or actually if it's a sister, you know, ask, uh, ask the young man um, how he feels about his ministering assignment. It used to be, how do you feel about home teaching? Right. And see what kind of you get. Um, you know, there's a wide variety of answers that you could get. One of them would be, well, I, don't, I can't really get to it. I don't have time, you know, school, busy, all that thing, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Another answer might be, well, I'm, I'm pretty diligent about it. You know, I'll see them, you know, once a month. I'll talk to them after sacrament meeting or, you know, at the dorm or whatever it might be. Um, or another answer might be, oh, I love home teaching. I love my ministering assignment. I love my people. Um, it reminds me of my mission. It just... Uh, helps me feel really close to the Lord. And that's an indication that the, that the young man's nature has changed. Mm. Um, and he, you know, really does show signs of being a, a true follower of Christ. And um, that's a pretty good uh, indicator that it can start off well. And if you, like April said, if you continue, um, we always recommend, keep your temple recommends, attend the temple on a regular basis. And, um, um, and make sure you're having, I guess the other thing I really learned was um, companionship prayer. Yeah. Mr. Miller Ballard, kneel before the bedside every night, hand in hand, arm in arm, and just pray together. Uh, and um, that keeps the, you know, the couple anchored, I think. Yeah. Well, not just companionship prayer, but companionship inventory. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, for the, for those for those who don't know what we're talking about, there's a there's a rule in the mission. I always thought it was really funny. They call it companionship inventory, where you and your companion, who are basically staying to, living together twenty four seven within eyesight for six weeks or three months, you you have once a week where you sit down and you kind of talk about issues that you have within your companionship, and it's actually a great it's it's if you use it right. And you don't if and you're not afraid of the discomfort of having that conversation, it can be really helpful, you know, 
Because I, I had some companions where I would say that. I'd be like, all right, so anything you want to bring before the companionship? And he'd be like, nope, I'm good. And I'd be like, okay, so I've had I've been here this week, and I know that there's something. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I got some things, you know. And so uh, another thing that's uh, that I think is great about a mission. What do you think? Let me ask you this. You know, yeah, go ahead. You know that the, the resource that missionaries use in the proselyting effort is preach my gospel, mm -hmm. PMG. And, and you may have heard this before, but at the, those departure day activities, we talk about how PMG um, transforms from preach my gospel to perfect marriage guide. Mm. And, you know, they have a chapter on finding, there's a chapter on inviting, <laughs> you know, getting commitments. There's, yeah. you know, there's that informational companionship inventory and good communication. So um, PMG, you know, after your mission stands for perfect marriage guide. That's that's awesome. I'm going to I'm going to tell my son that I'm going to start start reading, <laughs> preach my gospel. Yeah, that'll teach you how to do it. So now um, another thing that's interesting. Well, I wanted to. So did you ever expect I mean, given given, you know, I don't want to this. I don't want this to come out wrong, but given your backgrounds, given you know, where you've, you've come from in your experiences, were you, I mean, you've served in so many different uh, capacities. I mean, you were a you know, temple ordinance worker, you you were a stake president, you know, uh, now you're a mission president. Were you, were you guys surprised? I mean, do you ever look at yourself and go, I can't believe we just were mission presidents. You know what I mean? Well, um, you want to answer that well, first? <laughs> every once in a while we'll say, you know, when we got married, did you imagine this? And it's yeah. like, no. <laughs> yeah. Of course, neither of us, having not grown up in the church, neither of us, you know, knew that, oh, yeah, you can be called as a bishop and then a stake president. And the, and and so for me, he's always been very missionary minded. And so mm -hmm. after he served as a stake president, it did not surprise me that mission president was the next calling. Interesting. So since you've done all those things, uh, President Tally, I want to ask you real quick, what do you think, if you had to pick, was the hardest calling that you've that you've had? Mission president. Has it really been? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The the second, you know, the runner up is being a bishop. Yeah. I've heard that. I've never been a bishop, but I've served in bishoprics and I've seen the weight that a bishop carries with just the welfare concerns and then the spiritual concerns and dealing with you know because you're you're constantly hearing people's confessions and their deepest darkest secrets and hearing the struggles and um i remember i remember what i remember one time the my bishop i was an executive secretary and the bishop i served with great one of the greatest guys ever he actually was my home teaching companion when i was a youth and we were we were talking and and he told me he goes you know Josh I just want you to know if you ever feel like you're struggling or you're you know out of sync or whatever he goes just know that if you look into those pews every single one of them is a train wreck <laughs> <laughs> so so um, but what was it specifically about a mission president that that made that so hard. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's like being a bishop uh, to a factor of five or ten. Um, mm. It's not so much that you, you know, again, 
that you have a large group. We, in, during COVID, when we had all the reassigned missionaries who are serving around the world come back to the States mm -hmm. and then get reassigned to various stateside missions, we, we, we had our, our first transfer of missionaries the week after we arrived. It was 50 missionaries. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Those were, those were all transferred missionaries? Those were trans. That was our first transfer. They came in three days in a row. You know, wow. We were, we were spending all the time going to the airport and getting them back to the mission office and helping them train. And, and this is in the middle of COVID where you still have to deal with social distancing and all the rules. Right. We were all wearing masks. There, there were seven or eight maybe who were actually assigned to the California Roosevelt Mission, at least temporarily who came in on our normal transfer day, but the two days before it was all these reassigned missionaries coming in. So they, most of them knew how to do missionary work, but missionary work of course was changing. Right. Exactly. Well, and then you got to figure out how to house these people. And, and what, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like what areas you're going to put them in? Cause I'm guessing all the areas changed or added more missionaries to certain wards and things of that nature. Oh, it, uh, we were, we had decided that we would have, we, the missionary department alerted us that we we're going to get more and more missionaries. Do you want them all on the transfer or do you want to get some mid-transfer as well? So we decided to take missionaries um, um, every third week, every three weeks. Wow. So we had the 50 come in the week after we arrived. And then we had another 20, 20 come in three weeks later. And then we had another 40, 40 come in on the regular <laughs> So we went from 94 missionaries to 242 in the process of about four months. Wow. Where, we, where did we house them? Well, we put a lot of them in hotels initially. Wow. Where did we send them? Well, it, it was actually a kind of a delight for the members um, because of the normal missionary number was between 140 and 150. And now, now we had 242. A lot of them were Spanish people. Oh, wow. So um, every uh, we were able to arrange to have a zone of missionaries for every stake. And, you know, a stake is an ecclesiastical unit of the church comprised of you know, anywhere from six to eleven or twelve congregations. And so our zone of missionaries uh, would be assigned to a stake. There were eleven stakes in the mission, so we had eleven zones. Every congregation, every ward, um, had a set of missionaries. It was the first time since the beginning of the mission in 1993, that every ward had its own set of missionaries. They loved it. Yeah. Um, but the, the challenge was that in California, particularly, we were under pretty strict um, lockdown isolation policies. And so the missionaries um, did not engage in outdoor proselyting for a whole year. Wow. And, but we used, um, we used technology. And can I, can I ask you, can I ask you a question about that? The, sure. There's one thing that I noticed. I, I got to think, I, I think, so on my mission, uh, I served in South Bend, Indiana for the last seven months and there was lake effect off of Lake Michigan. And boy, I, if you've never, I mean, Californians, you don't know cold, like it was freezing. And we had us, I was the zone leader up there and we had a span of 48 hours where there was a big ice storm and everything was frozen and almost all the missionaries in the zone had lost their power. So the mission president just brought them all over to my place and we, and, and for like the first 12 hours, we were like, fun, we're hanging out. We kind of get a little bit of a rest, read our scriptures. 
But then I got to tell you, about a day later, we were like all about to resort to cannibalism. And, and, and I just remember thinking like, I'm going crazy. And I was there in my apartment for two days. I couldn't imagine being stuck in my apartment for a year. Did you deal with a lot of mental health issues as a result of that? Well, we did. Um, uh, before we arrived, of course, the, the missionaries who were um, susceptible to um, illness, you know, maybe you know, compromised to their immune systems, you know, if they had asthma or whatever, they were sent home. Mm. And also, if they had a history of uh, mental or emotional health challenges, they were also sent home. Oh, wow. And so that's why the mission complement went down from 140 plus missionaries down to 74. It actually got cut in half. Mm. By the time we arrived, there were 20 missionaries had, had transferred in. Now, these missionaries had served around the world, Japan, you know, Africa, South America, Central America. And they, by and large, they were all somewhat seasoned to the, the rigors of missionary work. But they were challenged that they couldn't go outside. And learning how to do missionary work through social media, Facebook, mm -hmm. um, teaching over a phone on Facebook Messenger mm -hmm. uh, was just a whole new world for them. But it was amazing to watch um, what transpired. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we would continue to emphasize with the missionaries is that the Lord knows how to do his work. And in Second Nephi chapter 27, um, you know, the Lord says that twice, verses 20 and 21, I will show unto the children of men that I know how to do my own work. And then he says in verse 23, you know, I'm a God of miracles. And I work by miracles, you know, according to the faith of uh, children of men. And so it, it required a great deal of faith, but, you know, just as an example, um, uh, we had a... a um, who was a non-member, no interest in church whatsoever, living in the Chico area, Gridley area. One night he had a dream. His mother had joined the church, but he did not want to even talk to her about it. And he's an adult, but he had a dream one night that he was driving through the orchards of that area, which Northern California is famed for, you know, mm -hmm. the orchards. Yeah, I know. I have family in Gridley. It's, I know it well. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, he got out of the car in this dream, and what he described it was uh, some heavenly messenger came to him and showed him a book, and he'd never seen it before. Hmm. Um, but he woke up, and he thought, well, that was weird. He got on Facebook, and one of the first things he saw was a Facebook ad from one of our missionaries about the Book of Mormon. Are you telling me that the, that the Facebook... AT, you know, the AI is in our dreams too. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm just <laughs> well, I'm saying you know, the Lord knows how to do his work. So when um, this um, gentleman saw the Facebook ad, he, he sent for it, you know, right away. And um, he's from Mexico. He's hmm. one of those um, immigrants that can speak pretty good English, but he wanted to read the book more in Spanish, so we got him a copy in Spanish as well, and he joined the church. Um, wow. Th that's the way social media would work. They're just marvelous experiences that way. And mm. um, now, you know, just to give you a statistic, this is something that uh, Brent Nielsen, who was the executive director of the missionary department at the time, 
you know, now a member of the presidency of the 70. And some training he gave us a statistic that in March of 2020, I think it was March 2020, worldwide, the number of people that were found to be taught in the discussions through social media were about 2,000 people a month. Hmm. And then COVID hit. Hmm. And immediately it shot up to 56,000 people a month. Wow. Worldwide. It was just dramatic. We'd like to show that slide to the missionaries because they get really, uh, I know, skeptical about yeah. sitting in front of a screen like we are and trying to reach out people, make friends on Facebook, um, invite them to learn something about you know, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. But we continue to baptize in the month of April. Uh, the church baptizes regularly about 20,000 people a month worldwide. The month of April 2020 was only 1,000 mm. because of COVID. But sure. our mission, this is before we arrived, uh, our mission had four of those baptisms. Mm. And I don't think a single month went by when we didn't have baptisms mm. in that mission. We were uh, baptizing people in swimming pools because um, the churches yeah. were, were, were closed down. Yeah. yeah. And so were the temples, but the work continued and the missionaries did get stir crazy. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. So, what's that? Oh, go ahead. I was, was going to say, you know, we encouraged them, you know, go out for a walk, you know, mm -hmm. get outside. You don't have to stay indoors all the time. You can get outside and get some fresh air. Um, yeah, do your mm -hmm. companion study outside. Yeah, do it in the park. Yeah, mm -hmm. but, you know, be sure to social distance. Yeah. And mm -hmm. You were doing that. Somebody walked by, you could talk to them. We also adjusted the policy a little bit, you know, Typically, missionaries would call home on Monday, but our predecessor had authorized that they could call home also on Thursday or Friday. Mm. So they were they were calling home twice a week, mm. and just you know <laughs> trying <laughs> trying their best to get through COVID, just like everybody else was. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. So that's another thing I got to ask. Okay, so I I was talking with some of my friends of my ilk, my years of of missionary uh, service and when the policy changed when you could call every week home I was like okay you weaklings you know uh, <laughs> you guys got to call your mommy every week we, we got Mother's Day and and Christmas not even Father's Day Mother's Day and Christmas and uh, and so but then after we got past that that initial old man jealousy we uh, I started having a real serious conversation about whether I think that would have been beneficial or not on my mission because, you know, when I would have that conversation, I would kind of miss home a little bit and, you know, do those things. And when, you know, in between those two calls, I just remember being so focused on the work. And I was like, I don't know if, if I was calling home every week, if I would have had that same focus. Do you think... I mean, you served a mission, and I guess, I'm guessing it's, it was the same for you, similar. Yeah. Uh, so mail mail for him, so not even. Yeah, me me too. We didn't have email yet either. I served 2000 to 2002, and email was just becoming a thing, and our mission didn't allow for it. So everything was done over packages and cassette tapes. We get cassette tapes from home. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but do you do you think that the weekly call is better? Uh, or do you think it's beneficial? I would say in most cases, yes. In the vast majority of cases, yes. 
Mm. In some instances, um, there can be friction, friction at home. And one of the hardest things about my mission as a mission president was trying to help a young elder or a young sister missionary whose parents were going through a divorce, mm. uh, decided that they just didn't want to be married anymore. Or there were other family issues. Uh, you know, a mm. sibling was uh, really struggling with church. And um, so there were occasions when the missionaries you know, just really didn't want to call home, and, and they don't have to. You know, mm-hmm. I say, you know, send a text message or an email or a, mm-hmm. want to write a letter, but mm-hmm. they don't have to call home every week. But by and large, um, one of the benefits we saw was, you know, a lot of missionaries have um, non-member parents or mm. less active parents. And um, we would then ask the missionaries, invite your family into your mission. Mm. If you're teaching someone that's making progress, uh, tell your family about them, have them pray for mm. that uh, investigating friend. Um, it's also in, in the missionary standards that if you think that your one of your family members could help teach that that family member, your mother, could join you on a Zoom call or a Facebook Messenger call to teach one of your investigators. Oh, that's awesome. It is. It is. It's terrific. And one of the things we were finding is as missionaries were exploring the implications of this is that their family were having a much greater appreciation for uh, their son or their daughter's service and they became a part of it. You know, they, it was almost like they were on a mission with their, their child. Yeah. Um, when my son went on his mission, um, it was uh, kind of what years, 2006, 2007? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was uh, text, you know, it was email. You know, by this time, we were uh, communicating by email. But he's kind of a reticent guy, and I, you know, I didn't know really what was going on in his mission. Um, I decided to go on the mission with him, so I was going to give away a Book of Mormon every week, and I did that hmm. while he was serving. I was going to try to keep up with him. Hmm. Um, but when we, when the mission was over, we went to pick him up in Ukraine, Kiev, Ukraine, and um, it was just amazing to see um, uh, just how well he was loved, how highly regarded he was. The missionaries all thought, and the members all thought he spoke terrific Ukrainian. Hmm. And that's something that we missed. I think if we could have talked on the phone, and we yeah. would have had more of a sense of what his mission was, we could have been more engaged in that mission. Yeah. So I, I think the I think the weekly calls are a good thing. I think they are as well. Um, just the youth of today, I think, have more emotional health issues mm-hmm. and, and than in the past. And I think being able to connect with home helps alleviate some of the anxiety that they might feel. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do know, particularly when they first come out, it's challenging. They're very, very homesick. And, and mm-hmm. those calls, I think... Um, it's probably a double-edged sword, you know, it, it's good for them, but it also does increase the homesickness a little bit. Yeah. But as they, as they move on, you know, they, they know that support system's there and they can, you know, it was not uncommon for us to get a phone call where they would ask if they could call hmm. a parent or a sibling, you know, when they were struggling. Yeah. Midweek. And, yeah. And, yeah. and we always, 
I was also, I think, pretty um, I don't know, lenient or generous. If family wanted to come visit, mm. uh, grandparents would come through or an aunt and uncle or parents. Um, I would generally allow that. Again, it's part in part my experience. My twin brother in Salt Lake City, his mission president recognized that a lot of his missionaries were converts, and so he, he readily granted permission for family, non-member family members, to come visit the missionaries in the mission, like I did. Yeah. And so, if you know, one of our missionaries had you know a less active parent or even a non-member parent come visit them, I I was going to certainly approve that. Mm. Yeah. There, there were some conditions on that. He yeah. would, you know, it's like take you and your companion out to lunch or whatever, and be sure you give them a missionary message, message. and an know? invitation to do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Foreman, you know, or <laughs> yeah. Share nice. Um, what was it about being a mission president that surprised you the most? Uh, that's a good question, Josh. Um, when I was a stake president, um, I was a stake president for nine years and I was still working professionally at the time. And one of the things I noticed is that there was just a constant wave of issues that could come up. We had a very large stake. I was responsible for 4,400, 4,500 members. Mm. And, and by and large, it's the bishops who were dealing with those issues, but they would come up to me and it just seemed like it was relentless. Um, what surprised me on the mission was the same pattern, but but much, much more frequent, much more unrelenting. Hmm. Um, as, as you had mentioned, um, I, you know, I would try to do something. I was getting interrupted all the time. Yeah. And, and the missionaries at that age, um, 18, 19, 20, the, the whole world is revolving around them. Right. And if they're uncomfortable mission, you know, I get a text message, President, can I talk to you? Um, and <clears throat> so I would reserve uh, nine o'clock at night. I, I would respond, sure, I, we can talk this evening, but, you know, keep working. You know, proselyting ends at nine o'clock, we'll talk then. And, you know, my normal work day all week long was two, three phone calls every night after nine o'clock. Mm. And they were typically listening to a missionary struggle with an emotional issue, you know, companionship mm. conflict, or just I'm not happy, mm. or I don't know why I'm here. Um, uh, dozens of missionaries have come out not really knowing why they're there. And it's not until they really delve into the Book of Mormon and get a testimony that it's, it's, it's the Word of God, it's a miracle book. And Oftentimes, that was a process between three and six months when the missionaries would finally um, have a spiritual experience that would open up the heavens to them and realize, oh, there is a God. I can pray to him. He can help me with my issues. And he wants me to do this work, so I'm just going to stop thinking about myself and look outward. One of the things I would say constantly on your mission, actually, I'd ask him a question. At any given moment in your mission, who's the most important person in your life on this side of the veil? Not Jesus, not Heavenly Father, but who's the most important person in your life? And I get all sorts of answers, but I would respond. At any given moment in your mission, 
the most important person in your life is the one right in front of you. Yeah. Talk to him. Talk to her. Could be your companion. Could be another missionary. Could be a member of the of the congregation. Could be a person in the street. And the Lord is leading you to people, or leading people to you that He wants you to talk to. Hmm. So you know they make a transition. It's just the most rewarding aspect of the work. I mean, you've asked me mm. what's difficult. The most rewarding and satisfying aspect of the work was when that that light switch turns on and the transition occurs from being focused inwardly, and all of a sudden you're just focused to everyone around you instead. It's just it's just miraculous yeah. to see that. Yeah. Uh, and really rewarding by the time they're going home. You, you know that I had the same experience, Josh. You may have had a, like me, I had a testimony before I arrived on my mission, but my mission taught me obedience and full conversion, full yeah. obedience to my testimony. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I kept thinking about my own conversion when you were talking because mine was, my mission was a seminal moment in my in in my true conversion because i went to, i was a bit of a admittedly i was a bit of a ruffian when i was a kid i was a little bit i was a little bit rough around the edges still am but um it, i went on a mission quite frankly the reason i went on a mission was my best friend who happened to be a female at the time said she wasn't going to marry anybody unless i went on a mission so or they went on a mission and i'm like well then i'm going on a mission and then i went on the mission and I, I didn't marry her, but she, but she, uh, and then I got there and I realized how hard it was. I mean, I was in a small, you know, you were a branch president. I know you, you did that for a little while. I was in a small branch, 30, 30 members in the middle of Indianapolis. We were knocking on doors all day. There were no referrals. There were no, you know, there wasn't social media. And I remember one day my mission pre or my, my companion, my trainer, he's one of my, uh, I love him like a brother. He, he, I told him, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like this, you know, you go, and also, you know, we were in the middle of the Bible belt, right? I mean, not in the middle, but at the North end of it. And so get a lot of people who believe their beliefs just as much as we believed ours. And, and he said, well, what do we, what do we ask our, uh, our uh, investigators to do when they want to know if it's true? And I said, we ask them to pray. And he just dropped to his knees and said, let's pray right now. And that experience changed the trajectory of my life. Because it wasn't just, and I, I, I tell this to people when I share this story, it wasn't just the fact that I prayed. When I was making the prayer, like I'd prayed about the Book of Mormon a number of times. And I don't know if I ever had a specific, like, spiritual experience about it before then. But I know that the difference then was, it was like, it was the first time where I was like, whatever the answer is, I'm all in or I'm all out. You know what I mean? If if this if I don't believe that if I don't believe this, I'm not going to do this if it's not true. But if it is true, I'm gonna I'm gonna put everything into it and, and make the time worth it. And I got the I got the confirmation. And from then on, I I had a little bit of homesickness, but from then on, it was like gone. You know, I was like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be, right? <laughs> and and so it's it's interesting how that works. But I think that there is a level of that. Where, you know, there was that the scripture in Moroni 10.3.5 where the Moroni's promise where he says, he says, uh, when he talks about prayer, he says, with real intent. Like, I really wanted to know and I was willing to act on whatever the answer was, you know. 
there's a component of that to conversion that's super important. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you a question. Did you ever serve in Shelbyville, Indiana? I didn't serve in Shelbyville. I served near it, but I never served there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I spent a good part of my, my childhood in Shelbyville, Indiana. We lived there for eight years. Oh, nice. Nice. And, and, and there was uh, a LDS congregation there, a chapel, and yeah. far from the Episcopal Church where we attended. There's a Shelbyville area, or there was when I was there. When I was there, there wasn't even a temple in Indiana. So um, they just put one in, I think, probably six, seven years ago now. Yeah. And um, uh, the mission has been split, you know, since then, and it's really grown quite a bit. The closest I got was Huntington, which was uh, a little south of Fort Wayne. So, um, but yeah, no, I love the people of Indiana so much. Yeah. Um, Sister Tally, what was it that surprised you about missionary service? How quickly I loved the missionaries. Oh, okay. You know, I you, you hear that all the time. Oh, we love the missionaries. That I was, I remember the first group we sent home, you know, just barely a week after we arrived. And there were three or four of them. Four elders. Four elders. And I felt gypped that I didn't get to know them better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I felt like I was really missing out on something. And some of those young men and young women, uh, they just hold really special spots in my heart. And, and it came so naturally and so easily. And, and I think that's what surprised me. I just thought, oh, this is just going to be all work. But there was such a love that developed that, you know, I just, those, those kids will forever be part of my family now. Uh, yeah, we got the wedding announcements. And um, <laughs> when we, uh, when we returned home, we had actually driven the car out. And so it's almost uh, Interstate 80 the whole way from Sacramento to right. Ohio. But we stopped in Salt Lake City and had a reunion. Hmm. And, uh, probably uh, this would have been June 30th. Yeah. There were, at least, there were over 100 missionaries from our mission there. Nice. And we had pizza and soda, but I didn't get a bite because missionaries were coming up and talking to us the entire time, the entire three hours. Yeah. It was just nonstop. Yeah. You know, there's something about a mission that's so interesting. I mean, um, I am still so close to so many of the elders and even a couple of the sisters in my mission, you know, and it's not like we talk all the time. I have a, I have a few that I talk to all the time. Um, but seeing them grow and watching them families, some of them get, you know, some of them stay, some of them don't, some of them get divorced, some of them are happily married, some of them become bishops and stake presidents and seeing all those things happen. It's, there's a kinship there that I can only describe as it's almost like I, I the only other place I could think it would be similar is if you went to war together, you yeah, know, military. Yeah. Because we just, it was, you're, you're in this different space and it's just, some of the most spiritual experiences I ever had, I remember, I can still remember the feeling at a Christmas zone meeting that I held with my zone on Christmas Eve. That was probably one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever seen and ever felt. And I could, I love all of the missionaries that were there. And I, I you know, there's, I tell people when they ask about a mission, I go, there's just some things that I literally don't think you can learn anywhere else. I mean, other than a mission. 
you know, uh, particularly about dealing with people, like dealing with relationships. I don't know any other place where you'd be stuck with somebody who you've never met before for three months at a time where you can't be without eyesight of them. You know, I mean, and you got to figure that out. You know, did you have, a, I, I always wondered what percentage of a missionary, mission president's time is dealing with companionship problems? Do, do you have, do you have a lot of those? Uh, um, I would say, uh, first of all, it's probably your experience. It was my experience that for all the companions you have, you're going to have a couple anyway, where it's really, really challenging. Yeah. Um, and so every missionary is going to experience that at some point, whether it's the sisters over their 18 month period of, of, of service or the elders over two years. Um, so, you know, the answer is sort of 100% of all the missionaries will go through some of that. Now, some are, are more emotionally um, well adjusted, equipped to, to handle that kind of conflict um, and, and rise above it. But, you know, to respond to your question, um, golly, I, I, uh, how much of my time? It's every weekly letter. Mm. I read all the letters every week. And actually in the last, oh my goodness, probably the last three, four months of the mission, it got to the point where I was able to convince all the missionaries to write to me every week. <laughs> we had a hundred percent submission of weekly letters. But, you know, at least, I would say at least half of them, um, there would be a companionship issue. Hmm. And uh, so I, I'm making notes, you know, something to follow up on and interviews. Same with the interviews. Um, hmm. The same question is, how, how's your companionship doing? And there's always yeah. something that's not quite right. Now, um, if your experience was like mine, Josh, there are a couple of companions who just loved the pieces and it was... Um, you know, really a, a dream to serve with, the, you know, I had one elder I served with for four months, and he, he was the one who was the, also the college graduate and the convert, and mm. I had a great time with him, yeah. <laughs> and I trained him, uh, but just to give you a sense of how, <laughs> you know, miscommunication could occur, um, one night, we were out tracking late at night, and I'm working him really hard, because he, he was a good elder, and he, was, he could keep up with me. Mm -hmm. And he just, uh, <laughs> he just said to me, Brother Tally, I sure hope when you're married that you treat your wife better than you're treating me. <laughs> and I thought it was this dream relationship. And, you know, part of my obtuseness um, at the time, I made a note of that in my journal, and I didn't, I don't remember following up and asking what the issue was. Yeah. Well, he is one of those people I stay in touch with, and we stopped by to visit him and his wife uh, before we left on our mission to California. His, he had a son that served in the California Roosevelt mission. Mm. We, we stopped by, we visited, and I asked Jeff, what did, what did you mean by that comment that I wasn't treating you very well? And <laughs> funny answer, I mean, it's, it's why you had this companionship in before. It's why you asked right. the question. Right. He said, Doug, I was hungry all the time. <laughs> to eat, <laughs> and we uh, the way our mission was structured, we only had two meals a day. It was a breakfast, oh. a big pranzo in the afternoon, and maybe a slice of pizza or watermelon on the way back to the apartment at night. Mm. So late at night, he was hungry. Nice, and I wasn't letting him eat. <laughs> yeah. we, we didn't have. I mean, 
every companionship has their struggles, but we didn't have many that we had to intervene with. Yeah. Um, there were, there were a handful, yeah, there were. but, but usually they, they could work through things and at least stick it out for a transfer, you know, the mm. six weeks. So uh, before they, <laughs> yeah. I was fortunate. Uh, my second counselor, um, was, um, had, had a mental health professional background. Oh, okay. And we had also LDS Family Services in Sacramento. Mm. That, that we had a person dedicated to our mission. So I mm. was able to um, delegate to our family services counselor and also uh, to my second counselor. Um, mm. If there was a companionship issue that could have, I could send him out and have him uh, facilitate, you know, communication between the, the elders or the sisters to try to, you know, patch up a, a teetering relationship. I, I you know, obviously experienced that myself. I intervened a number of times uh, with the companionships, but um, one of the great things about a stateside mission was mm. we had good mental health mm -hmm. support mm -hmm. the LDS Family Services. Man, you know, uh, here's something I also wanted to ask uh, that popped up in my head. I I used to, when I, when I was a zone leader on my mission, um, and we recently did a podcast with the sister missionaries from my ward, and uh, they're fantastic. And uh, I always used to say, you know, a good sister missionary could out-baptize any elder two-to-one. I mean, for some reason, they just were so fantastic at what they did. They weren't, in my mission, you know, different time, different era, they weren't all great. I'll just say that. But the ones that were, were I mean, stellar. I loved having the sisters in my zones because they just, they, they were just baptizing machines. And um, wh why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that when you have sister missionaries, they just, are they just less threatening? There are at least two reasons in, in my view. Um, mm -hmm. we've, we've thought about this issue. Um, one, uh, they're older. Mm -hmm. they Typically they've been to school They've gone to college for a year, mm -hmm. lived away from home. They've made some adjustments, breaking you know the, that that bond that otherwise might induce homesickness. Mm -hmm. Second of all, um, they don't have a priesthood responsibility to serve, and and so they have come out on the mission. Typically, I when I. I would conduct interviews before they arrived. I would conduct a Zoom interview with all the missionaries so I could get a sense of who to pair them up with when they arrived. And I'd always ask the question, um, why did you decide to serve a mission? And for the sisters, um, it was always a spiritual experience. Um, mm. They didn't feel like it was something they had to check off a, a list of life you know, experiences that was expected of them. Mm. Uh, they they had some sort of confirmation that this is what the Lord wanted them to do, and, and so they would come out ready to work. They, they didn't have as much uncertainty as why am I here? Mm. Um, and uh, also, I mean, you know, they're not they're they're a, a minority. You know, in our mission, anywhere from depending on the on the time, it's. 25% or 33% of our missionaries would be sisters. And mm -hmm. I think that there was a kind of 
bond created that way. We're system missionaries. We are here because we want to be here. Yeah. And we want to teach and we want to fulfill our missionary purpose. Yeah. That really I, does. I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't yeah, interrupt. I think too that women are a little bit more intuitive mm -hmm. to oh. other people and their emotions. <laughs> and, and so I think they can really zero in on concerns and, and, and I, I remember in Rome when I was a zone leader at the end of my mission, uh, my companion and I went up and we taught a part member family with the sisters because the wife was a non-member. Mm. And uh, we didn't have sister training leaders back then, but the sisters were superb. And it was very different teaching technique. It was arm around that sister, Sister Rossi. Of, you know, we just love you so much and we're so happy to share this message with you. <laughs> And uh, we would just love to see you in church. You know, elders can't do that. You know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So it, there's that intuition and also yeah. there's that, that kind of affection that sisters will display um, you know, with great skill and, and you know, innocence. It's not, it's yeah. not anything calculated. It's, it's genuine affection and interest in other people. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's that's so um you know it's it's just i don't know like i said i mean the sisters the sisters in our ward i in my ward they we've had elders pretty much the whole time i've been here and we just got sisters and just the work just goes you know we just have people coming out of the woodwork yeah. and it's it's really interesting um to see that that difference um and i also maybe think there's a part of that too that uh, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to have the sisters come on the podcast was because uh, people people recognize the the guys in the white shirts and ties riding bikes. They're not expecting women. They're not expecting sisters. That one year or two that you were talking about, I think I've thought about that a lot. It, I, maybe my experience isn't great because I spent my year between high school and going on a mission being a professional wrestler. So that didn't, <laughs> that probably didn't prep me much for, for where I was going to be. But I do think that that was one thing I did want to ask too, is the missionary changed from 19 and 21 to 18 and 19. Sometimes I wonder if that had something to do with the mental health component. Cause like I said, they haven't really broken away. They haven't spent a lot of adulthood time, um, you know, kind of adjusting to that. And then they are thrown out into missionary life. Um, you know, do you, do you see, uh, do you think that that has something to do with it? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, the, uh, I was a stake president when that change in the age had been announced and my goodness, the, the missionary applications skyrocketed. Mm. I talked to the missionary department, um, the ratio of sisters applying for missions prior to the age change was about one in 10 applications would have been a sister. Hmm. After that age change, it was five in 10. It was 50% of the applications coming to the missionary department were sisters applying for their missions. And wow. You know, as a state president, all of a sudden I was really busy processing applications for the, the young men, young women that both wanted to, to serve. Now, oh. I, I guess one other thing I would mention is some of this has to do just simply with the elders um oftentimes at least i would say 
maybe sometimes as many in the transfer, as many as a half of them, didn't have a testimony, didn't know why they were out. And they're spending the first you know, six months again trying to figure out, why am I here? What am I doing? And I, I, I can't have, remember a single instance when a sister went through that dilemma. Mm. And so just as a function of the time spent um, on missions, sisters hit the ground running. Now, I will say, and I want to defend the elders, that once they had their converting experience, they could be every bit as effective mm. as, as the sisters. Yeah. But there's, there's that lag time that, that sort of I got to catch up in maturity and in conversion. Where the sisters usually are already at when they arrive. Yeah, Sister Tally, let me ask you. I I have often told people I don't think that the companion of the mission president gets enough credit because <laughs> I I uh, I, I loved for a title. <laughs> What's that? I know. Well, because yeah, because Sister Tally, I got to tell you, you you the. Uh, President and Sister Walker were, or I'm sorry, President and Sister Quist were my second uh, mission president and mission president's wife. And Sister Quist is one of, was one of my favorite people in the world. I just loved her to death. Like she was my own mother, you know. She was kind of a, involved a lot with, the, she had a medical background. So she was doing a lot of the stuff when missionaries got sick and things like that. But she was always so warm and so great. And she just was such a great support for all the missionaries Perhaps you could you could share your views on what your role in the mission presidency is. I mean, because you're 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 just as much as involved as President Tally. Um, my my goal as a mission leader mm -hmm. was to help the missionaries become converted to Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, that was my goal. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I helped train. I did, I spoke at every zone conference. Um, when he was doing interviews, I was chatting with the missionaries or sitting in their district council meetings and offering suggestions and hopefully help. I participated in role plays with them. Um, and and I, I do feel like you know, first of all, I was his support, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I feel like I was a support to the missionaries too. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm sure. I got the impression that they liked to see me, yeah. <laughs> which was rewarding for me. Um, yeah. And so it, it's really an interesting calling because uh, I had talked to a previous mission president's wife before we left and she said, you can do anything you you want to do, you know, with, with his approval. And uh, and I had no clue what she meant by that. But there are no real specific guidelines for the mission president's wife on, on you know, like a checklist of things to do. And mm -hmm. so you really do kind of make it up as you go. And, and you find your niche. You find the spot where you feel like you are helping the missionaries and supporting them. April would handle our, our mission newsletter. You know, every transfer, mm. every six weeks, she, she would issue a newsletter. She took care of all of the scheduling 
And again, we had a very large geographical mission and we traveled a lot um, and she would make arrangements for the hotels, uh, make arrangements for the zone conferences with local relief societies and providing you know, meals and that sort of thing. Um, one of the one of the real difficulties for me personally um, was the the challenge of still trying to be a dad, you know, a father and a grandfather. Mm. Um, the, the 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 mission becomes all consuming, and so April was critical in just keeping us connected to our children and our grandchildren. And mm. um, I don't I don't know how I could have you know. You know to try to do better at connecting with my children and my grandchildren because I was always connecting you know, with the missionaries. There, there were always so many demands. So she was handling a lot with regard to keeping our family you know, in place. Mm. All, all children came out to visit us. Mm -hmm. and, and just um, you know, in the mission leader handbook, the couples are invited to take a vacation every <laughs> summer for a week you know don't announce where you're going just take off or let you know let your counselors know maybe the assistants and we never we were never ever able to work that in hmm. um, but we had had a a, a very entrenched custom uh, all the while you know we've been married particularly when i've served in busy callings that we would that friday nights were sacrosanct we're going to hmm. go out on a date and it took us about three or four months to figure out how to do that on her mission. I bet. Um, and we had to start with the assistants. <laughs> yeah. We had to let them know, you know, you're, you're the shield us from calls. You know, you hit right. it. If it's an emergency, you know, we worked out the code system. If it's an emergency, you know, you, you, you call twice and then you send the text. And um, but one of these assistants would continue to call us on Fridays, and we'd have to say, "Elder, you know, what's Friday?" It's Friday. It's Friday. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we kept our relationship intact, and you know, of course, April was essential to that as well. But she, she'd drive. Um, I'd read uh, weekly letters mm -hmm. in the car while she's driving us from place to place. Um, the, the calling is just so so demanding. In fact. In the old mission president's handbook in chapter two it used it doesn't say this anymore but it used to say um, this is one of the most demanding callings you will ever have in the church <laughs> wow mission president. yeah and, well that's eye-opening <laughs> so so demanding but i gotta think also rewarding oh absolutely yeah the relationships that you create with the missionaries yeah. with the senior couples um, mm -hmm. that you work with with the stake leaders and it's you you can't i mean there i don't know how else i would have created those relationships yeah. if we yeah. have served and and so i say i don't want to do it again but i would do it again knowing that i would build those relationships well, one of <laughs> one of my goals was I, I was hoping that each missionary would leave the mission feeling about me and april the way I felt about my mission president and his wife. I have mm. one mission president, and um, because you know, I just I adored him. Um, he was my first priesthood mentor, mm. and um, I really wanted to try to establish that same kind of uh, connection with uh, all the sisters and the elders. And 
um, you know, time will tell, you know, <laughs> if we're successful. But we we've got, you know, we've gotten so many gratitude letters and thank you notes, and we get phone calls. There's still the missionaries have returned home. We got a call last week from one of the elders who just had a question for us, which was. Um, um, how do we remember the Lord, right? And he was wondering how to continue to feed himself spiritually. spiritually yeah. Mm. And, you know, because it's, it's such a spiritual high on your mission and you go home and. Yeah. And, and feels- you, you go, you go home and you start, start, you know, judging your whole family about how they're not doing family <laughs> home evening and all that. It was funny. My, my parents, did that they said they were they were laughing at me they told me a few months after i got home they said we were actually warned that when you got home that you were going to judge everything we're doing and so when you started doing it we were prepared otherwise we would have been really upset you know and uh, because you know you it's it's true like i can even think about you know i remember being on my mission and being frustrated with members who were not particularly engaged with the missionary work and being like, I'm never going to be like that guy. You know, I'm never going to be that person. I'm going to do my home teaching every month. I don't know who this guy is, you know. And then you get home and then you get, you know, work and family and school or whatever you're doing. And, and the next thing you know, you're like, oh, wow, it's been a couple months since I've seen my home teaching families. You know, it's it just gets so so crazy. And so, but, um, so so what do you, if, if you were to tell somebody who doesn't know what a missionary is, how would you describe missionaries to someone who doesn't know? Oh, um, well, I suppose there's a kind of textbook definition. You know, it's a young man or young woman who leaves home behind and follows the, you know, the injunction of the Savior um, to leave home, family, for the kingdom, the sake of the kingdom of God, and teach the gospel for 18 months or for two years uh, but I you know that's that's pretty uh, plain water um, it's kind of a vanilla response it doesn't begin to capture what you know really is transpiring in the young man young woman's life um, you know ultimately it's it's a uh, and we used to emphasize this um, it's how a, a person learns to be a consecrated disciple of Christ. And for those who have been to the temple and understand, we make a covenant of consecration, which is that we we're going to dedicate our time, talents, and everything which, with which the Lord has blessed us to building the, the kingdom of God on earth. And so the you know, we ask missionaries to consecrate themselves, leave behind all other concerns, and, and follow Christ just as the original apostles followed Christ and be tutored by him and learn how to do the things that, that he did. Because he, he said, you know, you'll do greater you know, works than, than I had done. And my goodness, when, when an elder offers a priesthood blessing, my twin brother had this experience. Uh, a member of the church, a woman had been uh, severely abused by her husband, I think a non-member who beat her and she went blind in an eye. Oof. And he felt confident 
that she could be healed. He was his only at the time. So he asked uh, the missionaries, um, the elders, um, a handful of them to fast with him. And um, there was one elder, he, he, he did this really well. There was one elder who uh, was told in this patriarchal blessing that he had a gift for healing. Hmm. So they all circled up and offered this blessing to this woman. And uh, the doctors had said she'd never see out of that eye again. Well, within the week, she, her, her vision was returning. Wow. And, you know, that's just life transforming for all the others that were participating. Um, yeah. That you know, sacred miracle, actually. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's um, for, for anyone who I think is, and this is, you know, it could be any faith group who have really dedicated themselves to their religion, and, and particularly Christians who dedicate themselves to Christ, I think they'll get an inkling of what it is. But it's, mm. it's full-time service. Yeah. And when the missionaries really link in, um, like you said, you know, they become all in. Uh, my goodness, they, they live, breathe, eat, drink the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's almost as they can live just on spirit alone. Yeah. If they're get a good night's rest, <laughs> every yeah. night they can go out and do it every day. Yeah. What about what about you, Sister Dally? How how would I describe a missionary or define a missionary? Yeah, how would you describe a missionary to someone who doesn't know what a missionary is? I would say they are young adults who are um, getting ready to, you know, start out in life and they have chosen to give this time, you know, 18 months to two years of their time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And that as they do that, um, they they get blessings they didn't know they they could get. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, it's, oh, go and, ahead, Finn. Well, and that their job is not to baptize. Their job mm -hmm. is to bring people closer to Christ. Yeah. And, and if that, you know, makes somebody want to our church and, and be baptized, terrific. But as long as they are helping bring people to Jesus Christ, they are doing their missionaries work. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I remember thinking while I was on my mission, well, I'm, I'm 20 years old. So this is two years. This is my, my tithing of my time, you know, yeah. to the to the yeah. gospel. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. This popped in my head. I'll share a story with you about a missionary I knew when I was his own leader. Uh, I had known him at the beginning of my mission. You, you, we've talked a lot about conversion, you know, to the mission. Um, very spiritual guy, but just hadn't quite caught the vision. I met him at the beginning of my mission. We were in neighboring areas and very nice guy, but... He was really, he just kind of never really caught it. And uh, I was with him his last three, four and a half months of his mission. And uh, when I was there, uh, and he'd share this story too, um, I asked him, I said, uh, I just, I, maybe I shouldn't have done it this way, but I called him up and I said, Elder, I just want to let you know the assistants called me. And they had a challenge for you. And the challenge was you need to teach four discussions today, which was a big deal in, in our, you know, in our time. 
And he was like, ah, oh, fine, okay, whatever, you know. And so he went out and he said, all day I was mad. He's like, why would they do this to me? Blah, 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 blah. He's like, I've never taught four discussions in a day in my life and all this stuff. And But he took the challenge seriously and he did it. And he came back and he called me and he's like, okay, I did it there, you know. He's like, I'm surprised. I couldn't believe I did it. And he was all excited about it. And uh, and he goes, so you told the assistants I was able to do it. And I go, that's great, Elder. I just want to let you know the assistants didn't say that at all. I just kind of threw that out at you to see if you could actually do it. And he was so mad at me. But then the next day he taught four again. And then the next day he taught five. And he caught the vision. And for the last three months of his mission, he was the best missionary I've ever seen. And the thing that I say about that, and I, I, maybe if someone who's thinking about going on a mission hears this, the thing that was so interesting is I was I, I, his last day on his on the mission, we became really, really close friends. The last day on his mission, we were we did exchanges together. And he told me at the la the last day the regret that it took him so long. He said, if I would have learned this beforehand, I maybe I would have I would have found more people. And I maybe I would have had leadership positions. I would have, you know, done all these things. And, you know, I was able to tell him, I go, hey, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. That's all done. You you caught it, right? Take it home with you, right? But that's a that's kind of a wake up call in that, you know, when you when you catch that conversion, you become so amazing, and you and he felt so great about himself and so great, you know, you got to catch that as soon as you can, you know. And you know, I heard Elder D. Todd Christopherson say. Um, even if the missionaries around the world did not baptize a single person, we would continue to send young people out on missions. Yeah. For for the conversion that occurs for, for them. Yeah. And what they learn and how they grow. I, I've said this on multiple occasions. <clears throat> I think the church has the most ingenious leadership development program of any organization in the entire world. Mm -hmm. When you think about how uh, positions in the church open up. For example, um, um, a member of the first presidency, you know, the three gentlemen um, in the first presidency, if one of them passes away, well, there's 12 apostles <laughs> that can fill that position. You know, there's a redundancy of qualified leadership. And it happens at every level of the church organization because primary children learn you know at the age of eight how to how to step up to a pulpit and give a talk yeah. and you know at the age of 12 a young deacon learns how to pass the sacrament and, and like you were saying you, know, you mentioned a couple of times you know you were a zone leader um when i was a zone leader the mission president impressed upon me you're responsible for half the people in the city of rome Five million people live in southern Rome. That's your responsibility with your companion. Yeah. Well, that's pretty sobering. Yeah. And my goodness, the leadership, you know, qualities that are developed um, in, in church leadership is just extraordinary. Nothing like it in the world. I agree. I, it's like, I know you guys are three hours ahead, and so you're probably getting tired. I just have a couple of questions for you before we wrap up. Sure. What would you say... What would you say the the number one thing you learned from your mission? Yeah, you go first. I think Abel's got the better answer. So okay, go first. I the number one thing I think I learned is the true nature of God. Hmm. I 
I carried a lot of baggage from um, traditions of the fathers. That's what I'm calling them. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I have learned, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um, our father in heaven is really our father and he loves us and he will do anything that we allow him to do in our lives to help bring us back to him. Mm -hmm. And he's not waiting to punish us. He's not waiting to judge us. He just loves us and wants all the best for us and, and will help us through all of it. And I, I didn't really understand that until I served the mission. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah, awesome. I think, I think it's a good answer. Yeah. Real quick, let me ask you something on that. You yeah. mentioned the traditions of your fathers. Are you talking about like kind of like cultural traditions of the church kind of thing? Um, some of that, um, you know, with COVID, we have a plethora of podcasts. Ah. <laughs> and, um, you know, listening to scholars talk and, and hearing about church history and you know, at one at one point, every member of the church was a convert. Yeah. <laughs> and they all brought in their preconceived notions of God. And right. and so it's been in the church. I grew up, you know, with the Catholic tradition. And mm. and so those things, you know, they're hard to shed after yeah. after a while. And when you when you when you think about that, it's it's funny you bring that up because I remember the I remember I, w I was attending when I was an elder scorn president, a training elder Bednar made or gave. And they asked him, someone asked him during the Q&A, they said, what keeps you up at night? And he said, I am afraid that the growth of the church in West Africa is going to be choked out by the traditions of the Western church. And he said, if there's anything that's going to crush the church, it's the traditions of the church that are going to do it. And I thought that was so interesting. And then not long after that, my dad, who was the high priest group leader back when we had those, I was the elders quorum, or I was the executive secretary. I was a, I was somewhere in the leadership. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember where I was, but we were all in war council together and he was in charge of the Christmas party. And we used to do this giant elaborate dinner. And uh, he said, you know, it's so hard for the people who put that on. They don't enjoy it. Let's do something different. Let's do something smaller. And so they did. And when it was announced that they weren't doing this giant Christmas devotional thing, you would have thought they had shot somebody's baby. I mean, like it was, you know, it to the point where people were like legitimately not attending and were angry about it. And it's just so interesting how traditions can really put us off course, especially when the canon is open on Revelation. You know, it's just it's so difficult. So I appreciate you saying that. I really I, I, I thought about what you just said a lot. So I appreciate that. Yeah. How about, how about you, President Tally? How's your, how's your less stellar answer going to be? <laughs> well, I think probably I've, I've learned a, a deeper dimension of faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I had quoted before from Second uh, Nephi chapter 27. I was shown to the children of men, I know how to do my own work. And his work and his glory is to bring to pass our immortality, eternal life. He really knows how to do this. And um, so much of, of my learning curve was, you know, how to shed some of my own notions about how this works. Mm -hmm. 
done and, and try to live uh, more intimately with the spirit of uh, revelation. Like you said, it's, it's open revelation, ongoing revelation, and every mission is different. Yeah. And, and so um, I feel much, much more anchored on the idea that, um, that the Lord knows how to accomplish his purposes. And one thing I do know from my conversion is that the second coming is real. Mm. The Savior is going to return to this earth in glory. And um, that's what we're about. He, the Father and the Son appeared to Joseph Smith to prepare the world for millennial peace. And my goodness, what an extraordinary undertaking. As President Nelson mm. has said, it's the greatest... Uh, work um, on the earth today and the lord knows how to do it so um, it follows the keys of the priesthood uh, you know the men and the women of the church are not perfect but um, when you know, if we're sensitive to the holy spirit we will abide by counsel that we receive um, then you know the lord can accomplish his work and the miracles will occur yeah yeah, um, awesome. you know, it's a good example. You, know, you, you told the, the Elder Bednar story about Africa. Well, we received quite a bit of training from Elder Bednar. And mm. One of the stories he shared was um, on one occasion, a number of bishops from Africa came to him and said, um, we'd like to know if we could hold a, a two sacrament meetings on Sunday. And he said, well, why, why would you want to do that? And they said, well, we're so busy baptizing, uh, confirming new converts who've been baptized and uh, laying on hands and granting them the gift of the Holy Ghost. We don't have any time for sacrament talks. Hmm. We want to be like the American church where you have sacrament talks um, on Sunday. And, and we just, you know, we've got 20 baptisms this week, so we, we can't get to that. And Elder Bednar said, no, you're doing it the right way. Um, yeah, Americans right. does it the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, if we were doing it the right way. We wouldn't have time for sacrament talks either. Right, um, right. Man, that's that's a uh, that's awesome. You yeah, guys are, you guys are great. The the Lord knows how to do His work worldwide. Um, yeah. So, um, what's next for the tallies? Well, um, <laughs> I have, I have, I was already transitioning into retirement before we left. Um, I was still working for a company that I used to run uh, on a consulting basis. Um, what I returned to, what I really had wanted to focus on for so much of my life, is is my personal writing. You know, I got a mm. fine arts degree, um, a bachelor's degree, and I have a master's in creative writing as well. So I've got three manuscripts including my thesis um, <laughs> from from my master's program that i just really want to revise and get published nice i've published quite a bit um april is a novelist herself um, and uh, she's got manuscripts too that yeah. she wants to get to yeah i want to get to that i also was very inspired by love share and bite mm. and um, so I kind of, I want to kind of branch out and get to meet more people. And, and, uh, in fact, I was looking at just serve yesterday, 
looking for opportunities to be of service and just, you know, let our light shine. And yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, that's, that's amazing. I, I could talk to you guys for hours. I really could. It's, it, there's so much that you still have that missionary glow and that's what's so awesome. You know, I don't know if it's the same for mission presidents. I used to tell missionaries, I'm like, you got, you got like four months. You got like four months where you're, you know, all the ladies are going to want to, are going to want to date you because you got that missionary glow. You know what I mean? Take advantage while you can. Cause once it wears off, it's a lot harder, you know? So, um, but man, well, anything that you would want to share before we wrap up about about uh, your service, about missionaries, about your testimonies? Oh, um, I have a, a word of advice for parents. Hmm. And that is teach your kids how to do their laundry, how to cook a <laughs> meal. <how> <laughs> Yeah. So before they go on a mission, they have those basic skills down. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And I guess uh, for me, I, I probably have already said it. It's just that <clears throat> um, I, I had something of a Alma the Younger conversion, actually. Mm. I, I know that the work we're engaged in is the work of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ who stands at the head of the church, and he, you know, I, I've heard apostles speak to this point that uh, the Savior is a frequent participant in their discussions. The first presidency of Corinthians 12, he's directing the church, and um, the brethren really do merit um, our support because they're, they're living close to Christ, and it's going to be a wonderful day. Um, when he returns to this earth, you know, you read the scriptures, the, the whole world changes in a single day. And um, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive the peace and just really the wonderful things that will occur for a thousand years. Yeah. No war, no conflict. Yeah. You can imagine what the millennial arts will be like oh, <laughs> interesting i know josh will there be a need for lawyers I yeah <laughs> i know i know i know you're gonna cut me down before my biggest earning years yeah um, yeah, yeah but well, he, I, he is coming and um, i think we can all have great uh, hope yeah. that uh, whoever believes in god can with surety hope for a better world and i say that in the name of jesus christ Amen. Well, I appreciate it so much. And thank you guys. Thank you guys for your service. I, I, for a short time, got to work with you and I could tell immediately how much you loved the missionary work and all of the missionaries that have come through have been just stellar. And that's a reflection of you guys as mission, as mission presidents, as, as mission leaders. Um, they have such great love. Um, and, you know, anybody listening to this who's not a, a member of the church, I can tell you as someone who was a missionary, just being kind and inviting a man and letting him say a prayer, um, it means the world to him, yeah. you know, that they get to do that. And, um, you know, when, when you're knocking doors and being rejected quite a bit, which I think isn't necessarily unhealthy, it's helpful for life, but, <laughs> but, um, 
But it's nice every once in a while when someone loving and caring lets you in, even if they're not particularly interested in your message, just being able to share, you know, a, a good natured message with somebody. So give them a shot. Yeah. Particularly, yeah. you know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, yeah. that's what he would do. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Well, if you've, if you've listened to all of this, subscribe. As I said at the beginning, we got more fun stuff coming up. I've got all sorts of things, all sorts of topics. Um, and uh, appreciate the tallies for, for their time. And uh, we'll see you next time. So. Thank you, Josh.